We read God's word. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So, so David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, Go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to David. In all Israel, there were 1,130,000 men who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in Judah. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. This command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant, for I have done a very foolish thing. The Lord said to Gad, David's seer, Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine, three years of famine, three months of being swept away before your enemies with their swords overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Now then, decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand! And the angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a sword, a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. David said to God, Was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? O Lord my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word that God had spoken, in, uh, that Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. While Aruna was threshing wheat, he turned and he saw the angel. His four sons were with him, who were with him, hid themselves. Then David approached, and when Aruna looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor and before before David with his face to the ground. David said to him. Let me have the sight of your threshing floor so that I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. Aruna said to David, 
Take it. Let my Lord the King do whatever pleases him. Look, I will give the oxen, the burnt, I will give the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give all this. But King David replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take from I will not take for the Lord what is yours, or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. So David paid Aruna 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. And then the Lord spoke to the angel and he put his sword back into his sheaf. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. The tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the desert, and the altar of burnt offering, were at that time on the high place of Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God because he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. And then David said, the house of the Lord God is to be here, and also the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, um, this is a long and complicated passage for which we do need your help to understand and your help to uh, apply to our lives. And so we ask that through the, the great work of the Holy Spirit that you would speak to us and help us to know you deeply and to understand both the severity and the the beautiful grace that is here pictured um, for us. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and God's people said, amen. Our our sermon series has taken us, as those of you who've been around, you you know, through 1st and 2nd Samuel. And yet today we're in 1st Chronicles uh, the reason I chose, so this, this event is actually recorded in 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 24. But the reason I chose to do it, uh, the Chronicles account, is because of the connection to the temple. And because of the connection between the sacrifice and the thing we had it written up in the bulletin during the confession of sin, the propitiation, the, the propitiatory nature of the sacrifice that takes place on this altar, which we'll get to in, in a minute. But I think what you need to know very briefly about First Chronicles is that in First Chronicles, David's sin against Bathsheba and his sin against um, Uriah is never mentioned. In fact, Bathsheba never shows up in the Chronicles account, and Uriah only shows up once during the listing of David's fighting men. None of that is in play here. The one, you would say the one great, calamitous, major, breathtaking sin of David, according to the chronicler, is the the taking of the census. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like, why? I mean, it it seems like a fairly benign action, doesn't it? Not something that you would expect to result in the death of countless thousands and thousands of people. So it really does beg the question, what about taking the census is so bad? And maybe your instincts do, as, as mine do, if you figure, well, I'll, I'll flip to an earlier part of the Old Testament and read the law that states that you should never, ever, ever, ever take a census, and you know, that'll, that'll solve everything. But you look to the earlier parts of the Old Testament, and you realize there is no such a law. 
that in fact God from time to time takes census of his people. So let me give you a couple of options um, to try to make sense of this. Number one, some say that David's action was sinful because the point of the census is to assess his military strength. And like many kings after him, David began to turn from his trust in God and begin to trust into, in, his, you know, in his military prowess. So they would basically say it's the sin of Psalm 20, verse 7. Some, some trust in chariots, right? And some in horses. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so the sin here is David's lack of trust in the Lord and um, his trust in, in military might. Um, others argue along a similar vein, but that that this was not merely a census that was being taken, but it was in fact, it was in fact a conscription of soldiers. That the gathering up of these, all of these men was in, in essence a military draft. So David is conscripting soldiers, and the argument goes that up until this point in Israel's history, there was no such thing as a standing army for Israel. All the, the men would be mustered when there was a, a particular battle that had to be fought. But there was no such thing as, you know, one standing army. But now, David, in the taking of the census, he is creating his own personal army, or so the argument goes. And therefore, the census is sinful because, because of that fact. And, you know, his presumptuous personal military ambitions. And then we just cut to the chase. You know, what do I think? Or what, what is it? I think that these answers are on the right track, but there is a hint given to us um, in, the, in the judgment, actually. So you have a plague that strikes the people that is followed by the angel of death. Where else in the Bible does that pattern uh, take place? Right, it's in Egypt. It's, it's what comes against the, the Pharaoh, in essence. You know, the Pharaoh has taken the people of God. He has put them callously to work on his own building projects and for his own purposes. And then a plague, a series of plagues, strike Egypt, followed by this, this death angel, the Mashit, the, in Hebrew, Mashit, who comes in final judgment. And so I just wonder if that's, if that's not in play here. Like David has, has somehow somehow committed a sin analogous to the sin of the Pharaoh, and as though David has turned Israel back into Egypt. And what was needed in order to stop the angel of death in his tracks back in Egypt? I mean, none other than the Passover sacrifice. Uh, There was a sacrifice of propitiation, of wrath, that was needed to uh, stop him in his tracks. And that's what we have um, here. Yeah, so it, not, not an easy passage to preach. <laughs> I spent a lot, a lot of time thinking this week, uh, how do I, how do, what do I do with this? Um, I think I'll continue to tell you the story and then try to move to a point of application in a few minutes. But notice here, okay, David is given three excruciating forms of judgment to choose from. The first is three years of famine. Now, if you know, think of an agrarian economy, I mean, even one year of famine in a principally agrarian or almost entirely agrarian economy would be awful. It would be absolutely awful. Three years. 
or three weeks of the sword of your enemy. I mean, again, even one week of the sword of your enemy would be absolutely awful. Or three days of, in effect, the sword of the Lord, which we think is some form of plague. I mean, maybe the the bubonic plague breaks out against the people. And so how does, when David is given these options, terrible options, how does he reply? What, What are his instincts? Because I really think, I really think that, that people's theological instincts are what bubble to the surface in the darkest times of our lives. Wouldn't we agree with that? What are his instincts? He basically says, I'll take my chances with God. Because I know that even though the hand of the Lord smites me, that same hand, you know, will lift me up with mercy. It's a wonderful assumption. It's a beautiful assumption. It tells us something. I mean, David, wretched, wretched sinner is what we've been seeing over the last several weeks. Terrible sinner. Nevertheless, this beautiful example of um, his theological instincts right here. Like, let me take my chances. I will, I will find shelter in God's mercy. It goes on. It says that 70,000 people died through this plague. And... If that seems like a high casualty, casualty estimate to you, it certainly does to me, and it does to a lot of other um, students of the Bible. So what you need to know here is that there, there's a, a great deal of debate in Old Testament scholarship. The proper way to translate the word that we render in English, thousands, it's just a single Hebrew word, does it really refer to thousands, or does it refer to something else entirely? And I mean, there's a like, huge body of literature on the proper way to, um, to translate that. I guess why it matters. I mean, 70,000 seems, that just seems like so much, right? And then if you were to use that same word for thousands to number the approximate number of the fighting men in Israel, it comes out to about 1.3 million if you include Benjamin in there. And so if there were 1.3 million fighting men in Israel, that would lead to a population estimate of about five to six million people in Israel. And then you talk to, you know, scholars of the ancient Near East, and they say, that's impossible. Like, in 1000 BC, it is absolutely impossible that there was, like, there's nothing archaeologically that would support that there were six million people living in the Middle East right there. And so that's just part of kind of the, the, the continuing debate of what's the proper way to translate this. And I don't know the answer necessarily for it, but Suffice to say, many people die, and they die because of the terrible decision of the leader of their country, which of course accurately models the, the way of life, doesn't it? I mean, that is exactly how this world works. Now, you think of um, so many examples, but you think of Stalin's starvation of the Russia, Russia and Ukraine, um, I mean, one man, look what one man can do to millions. Uh, a leader makes an ungodly decision and the ripple effects touch, you know, all of its citizens. And so, you know, yeah, the gritty, the gritty bloody, terrible reality of life that the Bible reflects here. When David sees how bad this is, verse 8, uh, what does he say to God? If you look there. He says, I have sinned greatly by doing this. I beg you to take away the guilt of your servant. He says, I'm sorry. 
And, um, and it doesn't work. And then later on, he says, I think it's in verse 16 or 18, he says, God, kill me! And it doesn't work. But then God speaks to him, and God says, well, through the, the seer, the prophet Gad, go and tell David to, to erect an altar right at this place and make a sacrifice. And here shall the house of the Lord be built. So you, you kind of see where this passage is going. Um, the passage is doing two things for us. It's telling us why is the temple located at, this, at the particular site that it was built. I mean, if you go to Jerusalem today, we know that the most important piece of real estate in the city of Jerusalem is what is occupied presently by the Dome of the Rock, which is the former site of the Jerusalem temple. You say, why, why did they decide to put the temple there? Well, the answer is because that was the very site that this altar of sacrifice was built. And... That was also the very site, going back to Genesis 22, what happened in Genesis 22? The very site when Abraham takes his son Isaac up, up, up um, Mount Moriah, and it's the site where Abraham is to offer his very son. And so we're beginning to see two things. Both the temple is put here, and why the temple is put here. The temple is put here to be a picture of the averting of wrath and judgment. This is the place where this, the consequences of terrible, terribly sinful behavior is finally averted, averted, and the angel of the death sword is sheathed. <clears throat> so, I, yeah, as I said earlier, I struggled to think of how to apply the passage. Um, and I'm not sure that I came up with anything great, but... But I'll, I'll share this, and I hope this is of some comfort to you. David, why is it that some, some people, when uh, they grow old, they, they grow deeper and richer in the faith, and other people, Christians, as they grow old, you know, their faith just begins to wane? I mean, that's actually um, a parenthetical question. But isn't it sad, isn't it tra- tragic, that as David comes to the end of his life, like this man after God's own heart, this shepherd of Israel, this Psalm 23 writer, he's like barely making it across the finish line of faith. He's not. He's barely running. Why is that? But the real reason that, that stands out is he does something absolutely terrible that God turns into something you know, absolutely beautiful. The temple. And I was trying to think of... Um, other examples of this in the Bible, you know, we, we often hear that we should be thankful for God's mercy in the middle of our troubles. It's a lot harder to see God's hand in, and be thankful for God's hand in, in our own sinful actions and unwise decisions. But you, but, you know, God's hand is in all of that, all of the, the lack of wisdom and, and all of the sins. I mean, what better story to illustrate that than Joseph's story? Um, it, we'll do it really briefly, really quickly. You turn back to Genesis and you remember that Joseph has a couple of dreams. The coalescing feature of both of those dreams is that all of his brothers are bowing down to him and paying homage to him. And we know something about the way dreams work. You know, a lot of times dreams tap into our own human subconsciousness, don't they? 
we, we submerge some of our own desires in our subconscious. Dreams tap into those. And so what, what does jo- Joseph do once he's had these dreams? Well, he announces it to his brother and father. Brothers and father, of course. Hey, guys, listen to this great dream I had. You're all bowing down to me. It's a terribly foolish thing to do. And more than that, it sounds like a highly inflated view of his own self-importance. And so we could say, if Joseph wasn't so prideful, dot, 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 and he wasn't such adult, dot, dot, dot. Next step in this story. Jacob, his father, loves him more than all the other brothers. And Jacob gives him this thing this gift. It's called a coat of many colors. We don't know exactly what to make of this coat. It probably is some richly ornamented, um, audaciously rich and flamboyant present that he singles out Joseph to receive over and above all the rest of his brothers. And so clearly it's a case of parental favoritism, and it creates a great deal of bitterness in the brothers, all of which uh, Jacob is just entirely oblivious to. He doesn't even realize how bitter his, the, his sons are. And so we could say, well, if, if Jacob wasn't such a bad father, dot, 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 Jacob comes up with a brilliant idea. Why don't I send my son Joseph alone to check on the brothers and see how they're doing shepherding the flocks? All right? If Jacob hadn't sent Joseph, dot, 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 Joseph arrives at the location. It'd be better if we were reading the passage, but uh, here's what happened. When he arrives at the location, his brothers aren't there. They're not where they're supposed to be. They're gone. But then all of a sudden, a nameless stranger walks up and says, hey, you know, your brothers, well, I saw them a couple of days ago. They said something about taking their flocks to Dothan, which was an even more remote location. Yeah, I just happened to hear them speaking about that. And they happened to, to leave and head that direction. And this stranger happened to walk on the scene at this very moment. And Joseph happened to meet him. And it's all very coincidental. This nameless stranger, if this nameless stranger hadn't appeared, dot, dot, dot. So Joseph travels to Dothan to meet them. And his brothers look out in the field and say, well, there's a guy walking out, out here. What? what? It looks like a guy who is wearing a multicolored coat. (laughs) You say, what an idiot. Why would you wear the multicolored coat? Uh, Going for your brothers. And, 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 you know, if he wasn't, again, such a dumbo, dot, dot, dot. And if they had not been so brutal, they strip him naked. They throw him in a pit. He's in the bottom of the pit, screaming for his life. His own flesh and blood had... I mean, we've had our brothers and sisters do mean things to us. We've never had that. He's naked in a pit, screaming for help. And it says that they, they sat down and ate lunch. If they weren't so callous, dot, dot, dot. If they had not been so brutal. Uh, if Reuben's heart wasn't moved with pity towards Joseph. He says, we can't let him die here. That would kill our father's heart. Um, why don't we just sell him into slavery? <laughs> so, they, so some Israel, Ishmael, Ishmaelite traders happen upon the scene. They sell him to the Ishmaelites, who then sell him to the Midianites, who then travel into Egypt and sell him to Potiphar's household, an Egyptian, an Egyptian official. And you, I mean, you have this very long chain of causation that is spelled out over quite a number of chapters in the Bible. 
And if they hadn't have happened, how does the chain of causation end? If any of these things hadn't happened, then of course everybody dies. Because, you know, 20 years later, a historic famine sweeps through the land. But a man recently appointed to Pharaoh's cabinet, recently given a high government position, at the very early stages of the famine, comes up with this great idea, why don't we store grain and do this massive famine relief project? And in the end, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives are spared, including the brothers and Joseph and the father as well. And if none of that had happened, if none of that sin, if none of that stupidity had happened, Joseph at the end of the story tells his brothers, quote, and now, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Do not be afraid, my brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for. God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, we can look at this story with David. I mean, I don't want to minimize however many thousands of people who died. And and there's a glib way of doing this, isn't it? Uh, Look on the bright side. You know, God will work it for good. There's a a silver lining in every cloud. There's kind of a a glib way of, of reflecting on this. But then there's just this, there's a much more deep and theologically rich way And at least I thought the way was to consider just all of the events that have to take place for God, you know, to turn it for good. And this is what Paul tells us. Um, For those who love God and are called according to his purposes, God works it for good. Um, And so I hope that, you know, we all have a lot of sin in our life and We've all made a lot of dumb decisions and we've had a lot of sin done against us and a lot of dumb decisions done against us. But there's a great comfort in in what I just articulated. I hope you you feel it. Which leads us to the final point and the most important part of the sermon. The sacrifice. The sacrifice of propitiation. In particular, the sacrifice of Christ. Why... Did Jesus Christ die on the cross? And you can answer that question with a series of historical answers. Um, the, the chief priests were angry because of what he had done in the temple of all places. Um, the Romans were suspicious that he was some kind of rebel leader. The Pharisees hated him because he was a blasphemer and called himself the son of God. Uh, his disciples, his followers failed to defend him and actually one of them betrayed him. Like all of those historical answers have a modicum of truth to them. They're all valid. But one of the theological answers is, of course, it was what we wrote, I wrote in the bulletin earlier. It's propitiation. A propitiation is something that turns away the wrath of justice. Um, the quintessential biblical example of propitiation is the Passover lamb. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, the angel of death descends upon the land of Egypt and every firstborn child is condemned to die. But God says through Moses, if you sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of lamb on the doorposts, then the wrath will be averted. The Passover lamb was the propitiation by blood. And Jesus, amen, Jesus was the lamb. Jesus was the lamb. And so kind of this is a story that's again preparing us for that. 
I think it's very, very important, um, and I'll kind of conclude with this. Let's be very careful not to mischaracterize the cross. That as though the, on the cross you have an angry father who's torturing a helpless son so that he can get his wrath placated and then the obstacle of his wrath is removed so that he can be a kind father now and, and love us. That is not what's happening. Uh, the Good Friday is... It did not happen so that God could love us. Good Friday happened because God already loved us. And it's not just the Father who is wrathful and angry at sin. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all angry at sin. Um, at, all, at all sin, at all the oppression, oppression, racism, rape, genocide, theft, infidelity, child abuse, horrible rulers, evil. It's not this vengeful father who's angry at sin and a son who's like cowering in the shadows. No, it's, it's the son who's angry at sin. And it's the spirit who's angry at sin and what sin has done to this good world that they made. It's the son who is also holy, holy, holy. And the spirit who is also holy, holy, holy. Amen. And is committed to divine wrath against sin, but is also committed to divine mercy against sin um, and in the form of a sacrificial propitiation. Uh, Shelton had put me on to, was it he, he the one who mentioned it um, uh, last week? Walking, um, oh, what's the title about? The, yeah, Walking the Robe of St. Augustine. I, I need to read that book. I've heard it's just absolutely fantastic. One of Augustine's famous quotes was simply, was this. He said, the cross was the pulpit in which Christ preached his love. It's beautiful. The cross was the pulpit in which Christ preached his love. And we would add to that, the cross is the pulpit where he preached his wrath. He preached his justice, his wrath, his justice, his love, and his grace. All of those things are pictured in the temple all of those things would be accomplished outside the city walls on the cross of Calvary when a lamb who was slain for the sins of the world would see that the angel of death's sword was sheathed forever. Amen.